earnestly seek to commend yourself to God as an approved worker who has nothing to be ashamed of, handling the word of truth with precision. We're glad you're joining us for today's program, A Word from the Word, with your host, Pastor Tom, who will unpack for us the richness and beauty of the Bible's original languages as they bear on key words and concepts from both Testaments. Our hope is that your walk with God will be strengthened and deepened, and both your understanding and application of God's Word will be enriched, and you'll be drawn to love it more and more each day. And now, here's Pastor Tom. Hello, friends. Thanks for joining me on A Word from the Word. Today is part five in our series, The Acts of the Resurrection Life. And just to remind you, if you've missed any programs in this series, the podcasts are freely accessible at faithtalk1360.com. Just search the menu for local program podcasts. And in our ongoing journey through Acts, we're taking a thematic approach, and in so doing, tracing the lives of the apostles and disciples, observing the resurrection power they exhibit in their lives. We're discovering that the Holy Spirit is alive and well in Acts, and living or acting powerfully in and through these disciples of Jesus. Well, friends, today's teaching is called, Simon Says, Do This. We'll observe Simon the Sorcerer in Acts chapter 8. But before we go there, I'll bet some of you are familiar with the Who Am I guessing game, and I have one for you today. Who am I? When I went off to the Black Hawk War, I was a captain, but through no fault of my own. When I returned, I was a private. That ended my military career. Then my little shop in a country village winked out, as I like to say, marking my failure as a businessman. Even as a lawyer in Springfield, Illinois, I was too impractical, too unpolished, too temperamental to be a success. So I turned to politics, but I was defeated in my campaign for the legislature, and I was defeated in my first attempt to be nominated for Congress. Again, I was defeated in my application to be commissioner of the general land office. Then I was defeated in the senatorial election of 1854 and defeated in my aspirations for the vice presidency in 1856. Again, I was defeated in the senatorial election of 1858. But in 1861, I found myself in the White House as the President of the United States. Who am I? Well, friends, there were a few clues there. Did you figure it out? The answer is... Abraham Lincoln. Interestingly, when Lincoln was asked how he interpreted this strange succession of failures and frustrations that culminated in terrific personal victory, he remarked that the Almighty directly intervenes in human affairs is one of the plainest statements in the Bible. I have had so many evidences when I've been controlled by some other power than my own will that I have no doubt that this power comes from above. 
And friends, an interesting comment on this response of Lincoln was made by William Franklin Summerer, who said, Let us not make the mistake of judging God's overall plan for our lives by that portion which happened to be revealed today. God has all eternity in which to bring his plans to fulfillment in our lives. Think not in terms of today, but in terms of eternity. Friends, the early leaders of the church were people who thought just like that. And sadly, this kind of thinking has been lost by Christians in our generation. The first century Christ followers did not think in terms of today, but in terms of eternity. I believe they weighed their daily experiences in light of the contribution those experiences made to the overall eternal plan of God. Stephen, the first martyr who we saw last time, is a perfect example of this. By the way, do we recall just what the overall eternal plan of God was then and is now? We've mentioned Acts 1-8 a few times along the way, but it's worth repeating. Here Jesus says to his disciples, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And for you students of the Bible, these words should ring a bell, because they echo the words of Yahweh God, the personal and covenant God of the Israelites, in the Hebrew Scriptures, our Old Testament. Listen to Isaiah forty-three ten through 12 You are my witnesses, declares Yahweh, a reference to Israel, his chosen people, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. I, even I, am Yahweh, and apart from me there is no Savior. I have revealed and saved and proclaimed, I, and not some foreign God among you. You are my witnesses, declares Yahweh, that I am God. So, friends, if God made that statement in Isaiah, and Jesus repeats it in Acts 1, wouldn't it be fair to say that in bridging the Old Testament with the New Testament, Jesus' mission statement to his disciples should apply to us today? And let me rephrase Acts 1.8 in terms of how it might read today. Let's each insert our own names where you appears. In other words, you will receive power. I'll begin by sticking my name there. Pastor Tom will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on him, and Pastor Tom will be my witness in his neighborhood, his community, his city, his state, his country, and wherever his travels take them. Now, friends, you do the same thing. Stick your name in Acts 1-8 and put your geographical areas in at the end to make it personal for you. I believe that Stephen, who we observed last time, took Jesus' words in Acts 1-8 seriously. After all, he became the first martyr. Stephen and the first band of early church missionaries did too. They didn't think in terms of today, but in terms of eternity. In the spirit of Summerar, we can propose these early Jesus followers asked themselves this question— How can my life today contribute to the overall eternal plan of God?
Well, friends, our selective journey through the book of Acts brings us to chapter 8. Chapter 8 marks an important transition in the book, a transition from preaching the gospel exclusively in Jerusalem, in other words, to the Jews, to moving out beyond Jerusalem proper to its outlying areas, to other people groups with their divergent cultures and beliefs. Friends, I'd like to recommend that you read through the first 25 verses of chapter 8. We'll bypass the initial reference to Saul because he will become our topic of conversation when we get to chapter 9. Acts chapter 8 opens with reminding the reader that the day Stephen was martyred, a great persecution broke out against the believers in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria and that those who were scattered preached the word wherever they went. Since Stephen is out of the picture, Luke now spotlights Philip's missionary and evangelistic efforts. And friends, we should find it interesting that Acts 8.1, on that day a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria, fulfills Acts 1.8. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Earlier in chapter 6, Luke spoke of Stephen as a man full of grace and power who did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Now we see Philip's missionary and evangelistic efforts are characterized by miraculous signs in the region of Samaria. And remember, the companion word to power that we are tracing through Acts is signs. And as a quick review, three words appear in various combinations in Acts. Miracles, wonders, and signs. Miracles is most often the word power we've been tracing. Although sometimes our English word miracles is actually the word signs in the original. According to Acts 2.22, these three words describe Jesus' ministry of miracles in the Gospels. Power emphasizes the nature of the miracles. They were powerful works, and the power demonstrated was supernatural. Wonders calls attention to the effect produced. In other words, the onlookers were struck with amazement or wonder. Finally, signs underscores their purpose or significance. In other words, these works were signs of divine power, symbolizing a spiritual truth. That truth being, Jesus was and is the promised Messiah who had the power of God to overturn the human condition marked by the fall, sin, and now his ambassadors, the apostles and disciples, possess this power having received the Holy Spirit. Because when one receives the Holy Spirit, one receives power. Now, friends, I don't want to gloss over Philip's missionary efforts. The Samaritans actually became a bridge between the Jewish and Gentile world and were a logical choice to begin the first century world missionary movement. Recall that the Samaritans were half-breeds, a derogatory label earned by a large group of Jews who intermarried with the Assyrians during the Assyrian captivity in 722 B.C. During those 700 plus years, a fierce hatred developed between Jews and Samaritans. You see, the Samaritans were not birthright Jews, not pure Jews, not thoroughbreds, if you will. They were contaminated by foreign blood and false worship. 
and the straw that broke the camel's back and forever fixed the breach between these two groups was when the Samaritans built a rival temple on Mount Gerizim and claimed it was God's true house. By the time Jesus comes on the scene, both sides had already erected a permanent wall of bitterness, and their mutual hostility was quite severe. We gain insight into how the Samaritans were stigmatized and ostracized by the purebred Jews in Jesus' conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4. First, they were stigmatized and ostracized because they were not culturally pure. And second, they were not religiously pure. Intermarrying with the Assyrians brought in some pagan idolatry and practices. While Samaritans maintained a monotheistic faith, that is, belief in the one true God of the Old Testament, and they upheld the Torah, that is, the law of Moses as holy scripture, and kept the rite of circumcision, regularly observed the Sabbath and Jewish festivals, and honored Moses as the greatest of the prophets, and rooted their messianic expectancy on the Mosaic text in Deuteronomy 18.15, yet they rejected rejected the temple worship in Jerusalem, and rejected all the Hebrew scriptures outside the Torah, the first five books of Moses. And when it came to ritual purity, the Jews regarded the Samaritans on the same level as pagans. Jews prohibited marriages to Samaritans and didn't allow Samaritans to convert to their Judaism. This is why John's comment in John chapter 4 is so insightful and captures for us the enmity between the Samaritans and Jews. In John 4, 9, after the Samaritan woman acts surprised that Jesus is speaking to her, John remarks, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Stronger wording appears in the NAS, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. From a purely cultural stance, it would be best to view the understanding meaning behind John's remark as saying, Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans, as the NRSV translates it. And a helpful footnote in the NIV adds that sharing things in common actually indicates sharing eating utensils. The NIV footnote reads, Jews do not use dishes Samaritans have used. In other words, Jews dare not share a meal or enjoy table fellowship with those tainted Samaritans. So, in effect, Philip's ministry topples the wall of enmity between Samaritans and Jews, an amazing achievement only made possible by the power of the Holy Spirit. And friends, in the midst of the gospel moving into Samaria, Luke introduces us to an interesting character in Acts, Simon the Sorcerer, or Magician. We pick up Simon's story in Acts 8, 9 through 25. Simon had been practicing sorcery in Samaria and amazing the people. He even boasted he was someone great and got the attention of both upper and lower classes who proclaimed him the great power of God, per verse 10. But a turnaround happened when Philip preached the gospel to these people, and they believed his message. Curiously, Simon also came to believe and was baptized along with them. 
Simon now began following Philip and was astonished by the great signs and miracles he witnessed. In verses 14 through 17, we learn this news reached the apostles in Jerusalem. So they dispatched Peter and John to Samaria. Here Peter and John prayed over these new believers and they received the Holy Spirit. But evidently, Simon was tickled by this practice of receiving the Holy Spirit by the laying on of hands, and in his eagerness asked Peter and John to give him this ability so he could do the same thing. But Peter admonished Simon for thinking he could pay them for this ability, and scolded him and told him to repent for having this corrupt desire and wanting this power. Now, friends, our understanding of power is being broadened as we journey deeper into Acts. Power has been shown in the lives of the apostles through miracles, wonders, and signs. And Philip's ministry suggests his power was demonstrated in healing the sick and casting out demons. And in expanding our understanding of power, Luke brings us face to face with another power struggle. But instead of coming from the Jewish religious leaders, it originates in the spiritual realm, the demonic realm. Simon the sorcerer is operating under the power of demonic spirits, but Philip operates under the power of the Holy Spirit. Notice that Simon and Philip each represent brokers of a power that attracts people to them. The contrast is evident. Simon is using his power to benefit himself commercially, whereas Philip uses the power bestowed on him by the Holy Spirit to benefit others spiritually, to redeem sinners. But this power struggle, this rivalry, soon ends when Simon is converted. Simon, who initially had his own following, now follows Philip, as verse 13 says, in so doing, Simon now acknowledges Philip's power to be superior to his own magic. And friends, let's not think that Simon was just being a groupie of Philip's. The word Luke uses in verse 13, follow, is a strong word, meaning to attend constantly, continue steadfastly. Now, I realize Simon has been the subject of debate among Bible students. The question being, was Simon genuinely saved? Was his conversion real? Many commentators are quick to portray Simon's conversion as superficial. In other words, he followed Philip because his miraculous powers intrigued him, intrigued him enough to want to purchase Philip's power for his own advantage, as verses 18 and 19 might suggest. These commentators cite Peter's response to Simon as proof that his conversion was superficial. The gist of verses 20 through 23 being, your heart is not right before God. Repent, and I see you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. But let me propose to you, friends, that Simon's conversion was genuine. Luke's use of the word believe in verse 13 is the word for true belief. It's the same word used in verse 12 for those who responded to Philip's preaching and were converted. Remember now, Simon was a brand new convert and one who was formerly steeped in the occult. Recall verse 9? Now for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. Back in our New Jersey days, my wife and I had a dear friend who was saved out of the occult. His testimony was that for the first year and a half of his Christian life, 
demons were trying to draw him back. So his first year was a real struggle. I'm just saying that maybe we shouldn't expect Simon's conversion to yield instant fruit, especially a full understanding of the person and work of the Holy Spirit. How many of us can boast we fully understand the Holy Spirit? My take on this is that it's a bit harsh to make a blanket assumption that Simon's initial conversion was not genuine, or that his lack of fuller understanding be taken as a lack of true repentance. Wouldn't we agree that it's the role of discipleship to wean a convert off of past influences and thought patterns? I would even suggest that perhaps it's what Philip had in mind by allowing Simon to follow alongside him as he fulfilled the duties of his ministry. Friends, perhaps one lesson we can learn from Simon is a common pitfall of new believers. The misperception of and the misuse of the power of the Holy Spirit. In their zeal, don't new believers often like to help God out? New believers can be preoccupied or infatuated with their newfound power. Thinking that it's their power, they fall prey to the illusion of power and in the ignorance and immaturity make spiritual mistakes. How many solid or mature Christian friends do you have that have been sucked into the spectacular, sucked into the outward manifestations of spiritual power? Sadly, these sincere brothers and sisters who seem not to be content with their own spiritual life end up running from event to event, miracle service to miracle service, to get the latest Holy Spirit high, or even to get their own slice of divine power that someone else is doling out. It seems those Christian brothers and sisters have forgotten they already possess the power to live victoriously, as Acts 1.8 has been reminding us, you, that is, Jesus' followers, will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You see, friends, the challenge is rarely what we possess. Rather, I believe it's in how we live with what we possess. We possess power, don't we, friends? I suggest that the key here is confidently recognizing and acknowledging that we possess this power and then appropriating this power in our lives and exhibiting it in the circles of relationships or spheres of influence where God has placed us to act it out. Friends, perhaps some of the challenges we have to contend with if we're solid or mature Christians are these, which I present in the form of a few poignant questions. Have we succumbed to the illusion of power? Have we unwittingly adopted the world's view of power? In other words, do we seek status for status' sake? Or do we need status or position to define who we are? Even are we obsessed with ourselves and our importance? You see, friends, Simon the sorcerer with his magical powers initially boasted of his greatness or great powers, as we saw in verses 9 and 10, but later humbled himself and asked Peter to pray for him. In verse 24, his request was, pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. Here I believe Simon came to realize that he was no longer the great power and had to now defer to the true great power, the Holy Spirit. 
So, friends, let's just take a moment and review some takeaways, things we've talked about in this session. A great quote to remember and live by is, Think not in terms of today, but think in terms of eternity. Let's ask ourselves this question often. How can my life today contribute to the overall eternal plan of God? Is there a wall of bitterness between me and anyone? And how can the gospel of reconciliation help me restore unity and peace in my relationships? Let's keep short accounts with God, friends, and short accounts with people, as hard as it might seem. William Barclay said, God does not so much need people to do extraordinary things as he needs people who do ordinary things extraordinarily well. Like Stephen and the group of early followers chosen to wait on tables, are we women and men full of grace and power, and not just power-hungry people? Like Philip, do we utilize the power of the Holy Spirit within us to redeem sinners? Or like Simon, do we strictly use our power to benefit ourselves? Friends, what I shared earlier bears repeating. The challenge is rarely in what we possess. Rather, the challenge is in how we live with what we possess. Do we truly recognize we have received power since the Holy Spirit came to dwell in us? And like Philip, have we groomed a missionary mindset, driven to be Jesus' witnesses to whomever we encounter in our daily lives? Amen? Amen. Well, friends... We're at the end of our program. Today's broadcast will close with an email where you may write me. I'd love to hear your feedback on these teachings. Recently, a listener wrote in regarding a prior program in this series. May God continue to show through us as we try to be big godders, always and forever. Thanks for the wonderful messages. Thank you for your encouragement. And if a word from the word is blessing you, please join the support team. Just ask me for the details. People like you keep this listener-supported program on the air. Thanks for listening today, friends. And remember, Jesus loves you. I'm Pastor Tom with a word from the word. Friends, if you would like to let Pastor Tom know what this program has meant to you, email him at a word from the word at minister.com that's a word from the word at minister.com